Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today, I am here with the lovely Jessica Chapman. She is such an outstanding young, almost well, she is a lawyer, but she's getting her LLM in animal law from Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark being the only law school with an LLM in animal law. So Jessica, thank you so much for coming to Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I usually have these old people who um, are in the business, and I love having such a fresh new voice come on Why Do Pets Matter? So bright, so brilliant, really looking at animal law in a different way. Uh, so we always ask the first question first, and then we can meander. It is, why do pets matter to you, Jessica? Oh, um, so many reasons. Um I think that they fill the void in our hearts that uh, a lot of us don't realize we have before um, interacting with companion animals. And they, um, they give us a level of um, nurturing and de depth in relationship that um, we may not have had if we didn't have animals in our lives. And they just help us understand what family really is and what it means to be compassionate and empathetic to beings that we may or may not understand um, and humans and the way that we treat them is truly the way that we're treating the rest of the world. So, I think while we are, have all been home uh, since COVID broke, that the compassion and empathy that we're receiving from our animals has really kept most of us pretty much on the, on the even keel. What do you, what do you think helped you get through COVID? Definitely my dogs, Patch and Londa. Um, I, this might be too much information, but I was in Michigan at the time that COVID started and I was completely isolated. At that time, you couldn't go to other people's homes if you weren't related or lived there already. And so um, if I didn't have a reason to go outside, I would have just been inside the entire time. And so Patch and Londa um, made me go for walks um, and see the outside and not be afraid of the world um, the way that everything was directing otherwise. And um, even in those darkest moments and those coldest moments, they were always there and we were able to keep each other company. And um, they truly made the experience um, manageable. You know, it's true. I think that um, I did the same thing. I never walked my dogs before and now I walk them twice a day uh, for an hour. So I'm getting about five miles and it, it really was amazing how this experience, I've decided to look at it as the glass half full as opposed to the glass half empty in that 
I think that people have become more aware of, responsible for, um, and uh, attached to animals post-COVID than they were. And I know there's been a lot of talk and you and I have had a conversation about this with you know what will happen to all the shelter dogs when the people go back to work. And I think, I know what you're gonna say, but I'm going to ask you, do you think that that's gonna be a problem or is it something we can set up successful um, interim programs to help people get back to work? So regarding uh, companion animals, I think that um, in the past, and I don't think a lot of people necessarily fit into this, but enough that it's been noted that sometimes people will purchase or adopt companion animals as Christmas presents or other holiday presents, whatever your denomination is. Or COVID, <laughs> COVID companions. Exactly. And so in those capacities, sometimes humans might have perceived companion animals as tools or as a means to an end for whatever objective they were trying to achieve. But, and that might've actually been the case for people adopting animals initially in COVID. But now that we're almost well into a year of this experience, I think that the human animal bond has increased so much more than people would have imagined that beings that they may not have adopted as um, family members have become family members. And then people who already had the perspective of adopting animals as um, family members have just in, increase that dramatically. I know I have, Patch, Londa, and I are so attached, even more than we already were. And I think when, when humans have to go back to work, first of all, I think the system is shifting. I think that the idea of going to work is going to be forever changed. Um, and people are realizing that their qualities of life are have increased in some ways um, for being able to work remotely for those who are able to. It's a completely different discussion for people who have unfortunately lost their jobs. Um, and I hope that resources are out there and implemented for them. Um, but the, the idea of going to work is changing. And then for people who do go to work, the human bond with animals is so strong that they'll find ways to make it work. There are a lot of people out there who are willing to walk dogs during the day, or there are a lot of organizations that are starting to implement um, companion animal policies where they can bring their dogs or cats to work. So there are ways around the idea of leaving your dog at home um, or your cat at home and um, being able to work at the same time. You know, it's interesting you said that because when a lot of people were posting on Facebook and LinkedIn about hand-wringing that these dogs are going to get dropped off once everybody went back to work, thankfully people are going back to work. I, I sat there and I said, we really should ask the neighbors who aren't going back to work whether or not they're willing to take on the walking of the dog or something like that for a stipend because this way it's a win-win for everyone. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. There are, you know, the kids are home now, not necessarily going to school full-time um, at school. I mean, they're probably going sort of full-time Tech, uh, remotely, but sometimes in a school. So they have things to do during the day too. And it, and sports are canceled. So this is something to get them outside to do something. It's a win-win. And so I'm so glad you pointed that out. So now tell me a little bit about, um, you gave a wonderful PowerPoint to the ABA animal law um, section. So I want to say that's where I was first introduced to the wonderful and brilliant Jessica. Um, but it talked about things that you and I have in common, which is how do you identify animal abuse and how do you shift the paradigm? Right. So um, I am actually uh, dedicating my LLM project to determining the best ways to be able to um, handle that approach um, or handle that abuse. And 
Um, it's a complicated matter. I think, um, I think that people are so upset, rightfully, about animal abuse and the atrocities that humans commit towards animals. Um, and it's especially worse because a lot of times it's meditated to some extent and the cruelty that you see is um, inhumane. It goes beyond just lashing out, but um, can be incredibly violent. And so for good reason, the legal system and animal activists um, and uh, attorneys in animal law have worked to uh, ensure that abusers are prohibited from becoming getting into contact with animals, companion or otherwise, and also um, paying retribution for the effects that they've had on society by committing this abuse. Um, but my approach is that um, as much as I abhor animal abuse, and I think it's completely wrong, um, we're not necessarily looking at the pain and suffering that the human that committed that abuse to the animal is actually feeling. Um, there's a lot of research that's been done that shows that um, people that were um, abusers or committed mass atrocities towards humans or non-human animals uh, were actually abused or victimized in some way themselves, or they experienced such high levels of learned violence that they then became abusers. And so my approach is that rather than purely protecting animals by um, identifying abusers and locking them up, we supply them with treatment to be able to um, resolve their own issues. And so what I'm looking at is trying to work with either abusers that have identified themselves as such or that are court convicted abusers of humans and non-human animals um, and find out why they develop these traits, these motivations to hurt animals, um, and also what types of therapy would have helped them resolve their, their abuse. So for instance, um, victims of domestic violence deal, go through um, a lot of different types of therapy, and one of those is cognitive processing therapy. It's a really great program. Um, it's 12 sessions, and you really identify the root causes of your abuse, um, and you work through what those turning points were in your life that helped you develop PTSD and made you feel like you were a bit overcome by the world. And so I think it would be a wonderful idea to work with um, organizations that implement cognitive processing therapy and the originators of it and develop a program that's actually dedicated to abusers. So using cognitive processing therapy and perhaps changing it a little bit in case the dynamics and personality traits of abusers are a little different than the survivors um, that it was originally aimed for, but then using that to help them address their victimization and their trauma so that the feelings and PTSD that they may have developed over time as children or adults um, can be resolved. And then that would stop them from feeling any types of motivation to hurt animals. Um, and I think that this could also work with um, people that have worked in exploitative animal industries. So for instance, research or slaughterhouses or entertainment or retail, people watch um, atrocities committed against animals that are considered legal um, or, uh, you know, egregious violence just because. And so being able to resolve that trauma through CPT or other therapies um, may actually heal them and allow them to move forward. And so it looks like it's human centric, but really the motivating factors to prevent future non-human animals from becoming abuse victims and, and as well as domestic violence, human victims and any others. Right. It's, it's sort of nipping it in the bud because exactly. you, you interview people who have abused animals and find out 
what occurred in their life that may have led them down this path. Not only are you going to then help them recognize it and overcome it, but you can also intervene in situations that seem like this when they're when younger people are experiencing it at least that's what i heard you say which which to me is sort of my my jam so to speak because <laughs> most people uh when i say i want to do restorative justice with people who are um abusing animals they want to abuse me and i get that <laughs> uh, because you're absolutely right uh, i don't know that people are as um willing to get involved when someone's abusing you know, a child or something that as they are abusing an animal, because it just rips your heart out when you see a dog tied outside in all sorts of weather and not fed, not given clean water or whatever it is. I, I love when guardians of angels out on Long Island help people by giving them a dog house, by giving them, you know, proper things to take care of the dog and then either they rise to the occasion so they do what you said you know here they are they're not being convicted of animal abuse but definitely not the best you know area for the the animal to be in but they're not walking in and saying you're a bad person we're taking your dog away because then they'll just go out and get another one um they're helping them understand how to really have good husbandry for animals which is is key, especially when abuse is suspected or abuse is proven. You know, they just don't have um, a clue. You and I have been lucky enough to be brought up in families where animals were revered. Um, and there are many cultures where that's not the case. And so with the ability to understand not so much cultures as well as, as experiences, um, if we can identify them, then we can help um, uh, shift that paradigm, so to speak. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think something that's important to always think about is that um, the animals and the humans that have been victimized by abuse have dignity, but so do the abusers. And so um, just through observations of life and talking to other people, um, he, abusing any type of being is actually humiliating. And it's, um, it further victimizes not only the victim, but also the abuser um, because they're living their cycled trauma. And so being able to interact with abusers in a way that preserves their dignity and their self-respect and is there to help them, I think actually encourages progress rather than condemning them and forcing them to live in shame. And there are definitely situations in which um, people need to go to prison. I do think that the prison system is overused. And I think that- Especially um, in animal abuse because it's overused and it's not really um, healing the community. Right. It's just, um, I think it's probably one of the easiest ways for the community to say that they did their job, but it's not actually preventing it in the future. And so um, my method and my approach is that not only would we supply um, therapy services for people that are um, in the community and may have either been convicted of abuse or self-identified, um, but also having programs in prisons so that people that are already incarcerated have the support they need. And then those programs would also continue after they're released. So that way they don't re-enter society and then have a triggering situation that um, makes them react and then start abusing again. It actually helps them through that transition period. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me on this. And, and me. <laughs> um, but uh, I just, I think that 
incarcerating people isn't the answer. I think that, yes, we need to use justice in, in a lot of different ways, but sometimes justice isn't created by incarceration. Justice is, is coming to allowing people to get the help that they need and then to benefit society further. And helping educate society. So for me, I know we've had this conversation, but I've never brought this up on the podcast before, but I'm going to do it now because it is so on point. No one ever felt that Michael Vick paid fully for what he did to his dogs. And I said, well, let's see, he paid the fine. He went to jail. I said, and he paid his debt to society as it was seen. But like you're saying, Jessica, that really didn't heal the community, that really didn't give him the tools he might need to never do this again. And wouldn't it have been great had he been required, although being a prosecutor, I know the defense attorneys probably would have stamped their feet and jumped up and down. Wouldn't it have been great if he'd been required to spend five years speaking to young people in high-risk communities about how what he did to those animals um, ruined his life? It would have been someone they could relate to, someone who um, was found to have abused animals. It, it, it's the um, ability to give him the assistance you're going to give him to identify the triggers in himself, to, to become more aware and, and get control of them, but also to help people who are in the environment that might have um, okayed this kind of behavior to know that no, it's not. It's not in the, in the real, in the real community, abusing animals is not okay. Maybe in your small community or in your family unit, it's okay because that's what your parents do or that's what your grandfather does or whatever. Um, but it's not okay. And how do you stop that cycle? And I think your plan is, you know, we can punish them. We can't put them in jail. It'll never be enough for society to forgive. It's not really great, like you said, for the victim never to be forgiven and always to be hounded, um, no, no pun intended. Um, but it really makes you um, understand that if you give them the opportunity to um, find healing, um, be allowed to heal, um, and then help others not experience what they experience, that's a win-win-win for the animals and the people. I completely agree. Um, there are two points that I want to bring up. Uh, I love I love your perspective about allowing um, self-identified abusers um, or convicted abusers to be able to give back to the community in that way. And you actually see that in a lot of other programs. There are so many different courts throughout the nation that actually um, have representatives that might have been um, previously convicted of crimes that are now actually partners um, and represent uh, other people that might have been convicted of crimes um, as ambassadors to be able to communicate between like the court systems and the and be an ally for those that are still going through that process. And I think that being able to allow um, abusers that that respect um, and to give them the opportunity to be a really good model for what good treatment is towards any being is so important. And I think the other thing too is that um, I think everyone deserves love and, um, I hope this doesn't get too hippy uh, dippy for anyone, but, um, I really think that what it comes down to is that this humiliation, um, comes from not feeling loved and feeling outside of, um, the love that they see. And a lot of times you notice that animals that are abused tend to be ones that are most loved by their family. And then those that abuse them don't feel like they're part of that that family. Yeah, they feel that you like the dog better than me so I'll fix your little red wagon yeah and exactly that really, 
That is the, that's the cycle and it's not a good cycle. And the other thing that I wanted to touch on with you, because there's been so much work done with um, prisons and rehabilitating dogs and having people actually become less reactive because they'll lose their privileges on training a rescue dog or training a Mustang or something if they misbehave and go in the hole, so to speak. So mm -hmm. they've had really reactive inmates become part of these training programs that, you know, maybe they didn't abuse an animal before, um, but it actually would work both ways because you would have observations so nothing would ever be untoward. Um, mm -hmm. But they could give back to the community because so many of these animals are taught to be at least good companions, sometimes service animals, um, sometimes helps the horses who are, you know, warehoused because of the collections off the range, uh, have a second life because they had someone who had a lot of time um, help them become good animals. Yeah, and they're, they're, I think those programs are wonderful. Unfortunately, some of those programs have had issues where the animals have become further victims, but I think that that comes back to the fact that the humans that those animals were with didn't get the mental health and treatment. It would that really require did. that two-prong approach, right. Exactly. And so it's um, it's really making sure that that human being has what they need and then getting the opportunity, like you said, to be able to say, I've changed, I'm different than I was before um, and still have their integrity and that trust and faith that community is given to them to be able to be better. I think one of the biggest issues is that we just label people saying that once you've I done can never dig myself out of this hole. Exactly. I'm, I am my actions rather than I have committed actions. And so being able to go through a therapy program and then also really like a, almost a handholding step um, and also knowing that you're being loved and accepted back into a community gives that person the ability to truly change. Um, and I think um, so there are so many different restorative justice measures and um I think sometimes not all of them work. Everybody is uh, is fact specific, and I don't necessarily know if for every you case need, you need supervision. So it's not it's not that you're letting them off with a slap on the wrist and go on your merry way. Uh, I sometimes think, and I don't know if you agree, but I think you do. Restorative can be much more difficult to go through than penal because you just do your thirty days and you're done. Yeah, and I think for some people, um, restorative justice and the idea of facing your your victim and the victim of facing the, the abuser way too hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always work because that might actually re-trigger trauma both for the victim and the abuser. Um, and so I don't think that's the end all be all. It might be helpful for some, but. Um, I don't know if a lot of victims necessarily want to see their abuser. And I think having to go in that situation, um, especially for animals, even if it's an abuser talking to a vet as a representative of the victim, um, could create a trigger and trauma. Yep. Um, and it also furthers this identification of this abuser has done wrong rather than, and now as doing wrong, you're learning from it rather than saying, okay, abuser, I recognize you need as much help as this victim does um, because you've manifested on this victim what happened to you in some way. And so truly giving them the attention and focusing on them for what they need to heal, um, I think is should be a focus and a priority. Oh, absolutely. And and I, I couldn't agree with you more. A restorative justice in this realm with animals and animal abuse is in its infancy. And so in your LLM, you're really addressing something that 
that hasn't really been thought of before because of the um, the deep-seated feeling that people want to protect animals. And we, we get that because you and I both want to protect animals. Uh, but I think your, your, your flowering um, uh, belief that there is a trauma here that needs to be addressed that will um, assist the person who is convicted of abuse in getting the help they need while also helping people who may be suffering from similar abuse, we can catch them and nip them in the bud before they abuse animals and then educate the community that these people may not be the horrible monsters we think because of what they live through. Yeah, I agree. I think um, any, I don't want to say anyone as a complete generalization, for, but most people who've been victimized um, through abuse have probably recognized it at some point, probably like during their healing process or perhaps before they got therapy, that their anger and frustration from being abused could have easily turned into abusing another being. Um, there's a that pain and suffering becomes so overwhelming and translates into anger so easily and impulsive behavior that even the kindest person after being abused might develop tendencies. And I think that that's really good insight because it just shows that sometimes some of the most heinous abusers were actually some of the sweetest people originally. And you even see that in non-human animals. You see human animals, or I'm sorry, non-human animals who were the sweetest, calmest beings prior to getting abused. And then um, after the abuse, they become really aggressive. And so um, it's a natural process that we can stop. And I don't think that end result prior to becoming healed actually shows what that being human or non-human really is. It's, it's really um, looking at their core and seeing um, and having faith that the being may not have been inherently violent to begin with, um, and then working from that, that measure. Yeah, because why do pets matter? They matter because they sometimes can give us the um, ability to see things differently. Animals do forgive animals who do atrocious things. Uh, they, they definitely understand the, the give and take of um, relationship. Um, and, and for us as humans, we sometimes um, go overboard in our need for retribution that may not serve the greater good, which may not identify early tendencies to do this, because it would be great if we would be able to take a step back, you know, not, you know, forgive everyone and sing Kumbaya, uh, but rather be able to give people the benefit of the doubt to tell their story, um, understanding that I could have had the same story as you and I might not have abused an animal, but that's really not relevant because that was my trajectory. So what can we do? And I think what you're working on, um, on your LLM and it, it, hopefully in your in your um, law practice when it, when it occurs, when you get out of school, um, will assist people in having the ability to listen for understanding um, instead of for reply or retribution. I completely agree. And I think part of that also um, will happen through partnering with other fields. So not just using the legal system to be able to um, make change, but also dealing and working with um, people in sociological fields and psychology fields and um, looking at social work and seeing that how you can collaborate in, in research and also um, therapy processes to be able to really comprehensively resolve these issues for human beings because 
every field is limited in its own way, but together you have so many resources um, that really create an enveloping picture of healing rather than um, reaching that, that milestone and saying, I don't know where I go from after here because I don't have that specialization. Or that, that you just really feel that there's no help. There's no way to help this person. I spoke at the International Institute of Restorative Process, and it was the first time they had a program there that was not something on the prison, the school to prison pipeline, uh, which is the most effectious way to use restorative um, and, and usually the most common way to use restorative practice right now because it hasn't really come to fruition. But I went there and gave them a program on how animal abuse would be really a good way to use restorative process. And the room was full because no one had ever heard anything like this. So I was channeling your LLM uh, <laughs> because I, I just felt that it had to work because these people who abuse animals usually, as you perfectly said, are hurting themselves um, inside. And, and we can condemn them and we can continue that pain and suffering that they've um, experienced that led them to abuse animals. And they may have, um, I mean, when you spoke about how, uh, you know, slaughterhouses are full of people with PTSD because they have to turn it off. I mean, they really do because here they are slaughtering animals for us to, you know, consume. Um, and it, these are living beings. And how do you do that? Well, you have to really take yourself away. And that taking away can lead to other taking away at different times. So we really need to examine the experience, the effects on us, our neurobiology when we're doing this to find how we might support these people um, who are likely at the beginning, maybe when they were five or six, uh, wouldn't have taken this path, but for the fact that they were the recipients of incredible trauma. Yeah, and actually to note that about slaughterhouses, I think that's something about the learned violence and the connection between learned violence of animals and um, and human abuse towards animals and domestic violence. I think slaughterhouses are perfect examples of where human beings see how slaughterhouses or corporations that run them um, just treat animals so inhumanely and without any regard for their well-being or um, just the idea that you're dealing with a living being that you've you've killed and regardless of whether you're vegan or omnivore or carnivore you see that there's a level of self-respect and and dignity and respect towards the animals that doesn't that don't exist and so I think people who work in slaughterhouses may um see these animals and the treatment given to them and then see how terrible their working conditions are. Um, and you see that especially with COVID and see how little um, regard the slaughterhouses used for humans. And so watching the violence towards the animals and carcasses and then also basically the violence towards these human beings just manifests itself in so many different types of anger that the only way you can release it if you don't know how to communicate it or you don't have methods of processing that anger and frustration come through abuse towards those that are cl closest to you. You know, it's it's so true. And I know we're going to talk about this more and more because you and I are going to be pals while we go forward. I know Temple Grandin has spoken here on the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Um, she's coming back to speak about um, slaughter because she built probably the most 
if you can call it the most humane slaughter house process uh, that would work for animals and for the people who are slaughtering them. And as you said, it really, the efficacy was not reached because it wasn't quick enough or it wasn't, you know, um, it, um, qu well, quick is actually the biggest thing. They didn't get enough done. However, it really took into consideration the trauma on people, putting the animals through the slaughter and the animals going through the slaughter. So she looked at it from all sides. And so she said, you know, you can do this. It's not that you can't do it, but you should do it in a way that honors the people who are in the process and the animals going through the process. And so for me, uh, I'm right there with you. And, and whether it's, you know, animal abuse that is done because of trauma that you've had in your life or PTSD that you're suffering because you are part of this um, group that are, are um, slaughtering animals or abusing animals because you don't know any better. I really want to take what you're doing a step further with you. So I'm so glad you're here, Jessica. I want to wrap up with um, three things. And I know you gave me three things. So I'm going to read them for the, um, the listening audience. But I just want to say that um, it is imperative that the depth of relation we have for our animals is what will drive what we do next. And if someone hasn't the ability to have a deep relationship with an animal, we might wanna feel a little um, compassionate for them because they haven't felt that wonderful, wonderful um, connection that you felt um, with Londa, right? Yeah, and Pat, Pat and Londa. Right? Yeah. And I have Roxy. So, you know, it's not that people who don't have animals um, aren't good people. They, some of them are wonderful people um, and, and they're very disenfranchised, but that's a whole nother call. Uh, but if you have had an animal and you have had that relationship, it really is something to behold. And if someone isn't capable of doing that, we can either punish them or we can help them recognize that this is not something that serves them and maybe we can help them have a relationship that serves them better. Yeah, and I think um, for people who are lucky enough to have companion animals or any animal in their life, um, oftentimes it is easier for us to develop compassion because we know what it means to have an innocent being um, completely depend on us. And so I guess my thought is- And non-judgmental, so they depend yeah. on us and they're not no judgmental, judgmental of us. <laughs> if we can have that much compassion towards a being that doesn't speak our language and doesn't have human form, how is it that it's so difficult for us to not have compassion towards beings that are humans? And so for That's people that are- perfect. So if people are abusers, um, we should have as much compassion for them and understanding and, and work as hard as we do to understand our companion animals as we do to, uh, to, to understand them. And I think actually people that are in the animal law field and have companion animals have um, a higher level of responsibility for that because they do have such a deep understanding of what it means to love an, an other. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for such a young woman starting your career now with your LLM in animal studies with a with sort of a focus on how to help the victims, both the person who is abusing and the animal um, in, in a different way is just brilliant. I mean, here I am an old fart with, you know, uh, my podcast that I just am thrilled you're on because this is, I mean, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because here I am speaking to someone who is just starting her legal career 
talking about things that I talked about five years ago all by myself. So now I know that this concept of being kind um, and understanding that people have different experiences and victimization that we can't even see that then creates the perfect storm of animal abuse will be something that's considered. I don't know if it'll get off the ground in my lifetime, but hopefully, Jessica, it'll get off the ground and running down the street in your lifetime. I hope so. I think um, with the uh, intensity of what's going on in the world, um, we can't continue using methods that condemn each other and create an us versus them or an other. And so um, I think, I mean, among, aside from animal law, I'll be dedicating my career to finding ways to really have everyone work on the same side um, and comprehensively help each other. And so um, I don't necessarily think any other resources will work. We need to we need to find a way that allows us to be able to move forward as one entity rather than um, picking sides. And so, yes, I think that uh, I think methods like this and that other people who are on the same page will create um, definitely within my lifetime, and hopefully, I imagine definitely well within your lifetime too. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going to pull you over to the dark side, Jessica, to mediation, because when you want to have a unified group, you have to learn the skills of listening first. And so I'm definitely going to have you take one of those courses, at least so that you can, you can get the skill set, because it is amazing to me um, that the ability the mediation has given me to stop being a litigator and start being a peacemaker, which is what you want to do, has been amazing. So Jessica Chapman, LLM candidate at Lewis and Clark in Animal Studies, I'm so grateful you're here. I'm going to put her three takeaways on the show notes, but I'm going to read them here. Healing abusers of their victimization and trauma from their own abuse or learned violence experience will protect non-human animals and humans from becoming future victims. So very true. The second is exploitation of animals and the legal abuse that occurs in industries that exploits animals like traumatized industrial workers, which can manifest itself as abuse to companion animals and as domestic violence. Unbelievably true. And then finally, we as advocates should develop relationships with individuals whom courts have convicted of abuse and with individuals who identify themselves as abusers to find out what therapy techniques would help them heal from their past trauma, condemning the individual and excluding their insight from therapy discussions enables the abuse cycle to perpetuate. Experts in multiple areas should collaborate on therapeutic and rehabilitative approaches. You're speaking my language, Jessica. <laughs> we, can't, we can't expect things to change if we don't come at them from different points of view um, and see them in a way that Jessica sees it and Deborah sees it. And then the people say Michael Vick sees it because you have to hear it from every point of view so you can find as the wonderful William Urey from Harvard's um, program on negotiation says there's always a third way and i think that's what you're seeking you're seeking that unity that finds that path that helps people find a way that um, honors people who have had trauma that created the situation and the pets or animals that they've traumatized due to that trauma if you can follow that trauma trail um, <laughs> it'll really it'll make a big difference so jessica thank you so much for being here you'll be back because i need to keep up with you and see where you're going and what you're doing Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure and I'll definitely be back as long as you'll have me. So. Absolutely. Well, you know, you're the younger version of me. So although she's much prettier and much thinner, but that's okay. Wow.
The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.